The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Chairman and friends, ye are my witnesses, said Jehovah God to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. This people have I found for myself, they shall show forth my praise. In these words of the prophet Isaiah, there is summed up for us the whole task of the people of God in this world. The New Testament, through Peter, tells us the same thing, that ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But if God's people must bear witness of God in this world, how do they come to be equipped for this task? The answer is that they have been formed by God for this purpose. They have not chosen this task, first of all, for themselves. They have been chosen for it. They were not of themselves ready to obey when they were called to perform this task, for their hearts too, like the hearts of all other men, were deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. They were of a peace with those who in the va- walk in the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But from this vain conversation received by tradition from their elders, they have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, and this Christ himself was foreordained before the foundation of this world for this very task of redeeming this his people. So they are chosen in him before the foundation of this world that they might be witnesses of him and for him in this world. The Christ chosen to redeem his people, and the people chosen to be redeemed by this Christ, a neat little circle. Someone will say, your Christ, the Christ of you Calvinists, came only to save you, or at best a little group of fundamentalists with you. Is that to the praise of the glory of his grace? Your Christ died only for the elect. Is your witnessing to the world to be to that effect? Are you going to tell to the world that there's just a little bit of a group of Calvinists for whom Christ came to die in this world and that he did not come to save the others? Your Christ or your God appoints men unto death, even to eternal death, regardless of what they do, no matter how good they are, how virtuous they are, they are bound to go to hell. A peculiar people indeed you are. You are the God who appoints men to eternal life or to eternal death, regardless of what men do. You are morally a Pharisee if you then pretend to preach the gospel and make a general offer of salvation unto all men. Or you have flatly to contradict yourself if you do so. I challenge you to preach in a cemetery and to expect results. Now when some objector speaks to you in that way, 
as they frequently do, as many of them did to me this week, what are you going to say to them? Perhaps you think first of all of the fact that Adam and Eve was in a different position from yourself, that you have become a sinner through Adam, and that you are now unable, because of your inheritance of sin from him, to keep from sinning. You are bound to sin. Your will is no longer free not to sin. And you say to the objector, well, it was different in the case of Adam, the first man God made him perfect, and he was able not to sin. He was also able to sin, he could sin, or he could keep from sinning. And perhaps you think that you've escaped the objector by thus referring to Adam, that he had you had If he knows his business, and if he means business, he will go right after you, and he will say to you, but you Calvinists, and you're John Calvin, particularly said that Adam had to sin, didn't he? You say he was free not to sin, and free to sin, was he? Isn't it in your very, the heart of your theology, that he had to sin? Did not God choose your cause to save sinners? And didn't he save, choose you before the foundation of this world in that cause? Well, how could that have been if Adam wouldn't have sinned? He had to sin if there was to be any meaning to your Christ being chosen before the foundation of this world to save you and for you to be chosen in Christ before this foundation of this world that you might be saved in him. You are flatly contradicting yourself. It keeps coming back to this, that if you hold to the reformed position in which you make God the all-determinative force back of all history, that whatsoever comes to pass, even those things that come to pass through the will of man, through his freedom, that in the last analysis they are in accordance with that will of that God, then he will say you're an utter determinist, and that history then is a farce, and that you're denying the meaning of human personality and its significance, and that therefore you're immoral, and trampling underfoot all his moral sensibilities, you're making nonsense of logic and of human experience. All of those things, in one form or another, the objector will say to you. And then in particular, he will be vigorous and violent about your belief in Christ. He will say to you, while your Christ came into this world to save men. And then you quote from the scriptures that Christ wept over Jerusalem, and that he would, as a hen gathered her chicks together, so he would have gathered her children to himself. And you say that he seriously offered himself unto men, and that he performed miracles before them, that they might believe in him, that they might be drawn to him. He said, if you believe me not for my words, believe me for my works. And yet, as John tells us in his gospel, though he performed so many miracles before them, yet they did not believe. Because that Isaiah said they could not believe, because he had blinded their eyes, that they could not see. Now there you are. What utter contradiction, this Christianity of yours. A Christ who asks men to come to him, who begs them to come to him, who opens his arms to receive them, and he weeps over men that they should come to him, and then he blinds their eyes that they can't come to him. He has done that because he is God, isn't he? Isn't he one with the Father and the Spirit eternally and controls what happens? And was it not he from before the foundation of this world that has determined that those shall be blinded 
and shall not be able to come, and shall not be able to accept him even when he invites them? What utter nonsense is this? I will have none of them in disgust. They turn away from your witness for the gospel, and your witness particularly if you believe in the reformed faith. And then to climax it all, they will point out to you that in Ephesians and in Colossians, the Christ of the Scriptures is presented as the cosmic Christ, that he came to save the whole world. And they say, your Christ came to save a few individuals out of that world. Don't we belong to the world? Aren't we worth saving? Are you better than we? You pretend you're saved not because you're better than others. You must think you are. What utter nonsense, what folly, what absolute contradiction. I will have none of it. They turn away in complete disgust. Now surely the question for us is, whether in order to win Christians to the gospel, people to the gospel, to the acceptance of Christ, we shall attempt to satisfy them on the question of this apparent contradiction, whether we shall try somehow by hook or crook to show them that there isn't really any such contradiction or even apparent contradiction, or that the contradiction isn't more than apparent. What shall we do? That is the question. Well, the first thing, of course, to remember is that we have been saved by grace, is it not? We were not wiser than others when we accepted the gospel. We were blind as others are blind. And the scales have to be taken from our eyes so that we might see the Christ and receive him and be saved by him. But when we have said that much, and we must say that of others as well as of ourselves, our fellow Christians who are not Calvinists, let us with Augustine say that all true Christians at heart are those that are believers in God, the true God. Let us say with Warfield that all true Christians are Calvinists at heart. But when we've said that, let us also stay with Augustine and reply to this objection when he comes with that charge that our whole faith is charged with absolute contradiction. Let us respond in the words of Paul the Apostle, Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Shall he that hath made man not, shall he be subject to the judgment of men? Shall he that is made by God charge him that made him and ask him, Why hast thou made me thus? That's the answer that St. Augustine gives over and over. That's the answer Calvin gives hundreds of times. It is the answer that it seems to me we must also give. Now then, if that is true, how shall we begin this matter? Well, it seems to me that we must begin where Paul the Apostle began. He begins in Romans by telling us, does he not, that actually the whole world reveals God and reveals him clearly, that every fact in this universe has, as it were, a mark of ownership of honor. If you go to a brickyard, as I used to see bricks coming out of the brickyard, it has, each brick has a stamp of that brickyard upon it. You go to a place where they make chewing gum, beech nut, for instance, you will find that each package has beech nut written upon it. Well, as it were, so every fact in this universe has on it, this was created by God. It is perfectly clear. It is unmistakably clear. All things are what they are as facts because God has made them. And they are what they are in the specific spot 
in the history that God has for these facts. You are what you are, and I am what I am. Not only that this Bible is, or anything is, in the last analysis, what it is, precisely, exclusively, for no other reason, and for that reason as a perfect reason, because God says that it must be so, and thus it is. Now, if that is true, then man himself, being made in the image of God, in his own makeup, his own constitution, his own psychological makeup, is also a witness of God to himself, a revelation to himself, a nature round about him, and his own constitution within him. They funnel to him as a morally responsible person. The fact that God is his nature and that he is responsible to this God. Paul says that specifically when he says in Romans 1, all men knowing God, nonsense from their own, knowing God, they kept him not in remembrance, or they suppressed or attempted to suppress that knowledge of themselves. Now then, all men know God, they do not know merely a God, so frequently we read in literature that you can prove that a God exists. Well, you can't prove that, but you can prove that the God exists, because he is the very presupposition of the meaning of the word proof. In other words, God, as the creator, is so pleased that no fact without him as the creator has any meaning. You can't go with a lantern or with an oil lamp and ask whether there is a sun because the very idea of an oil lamp is that it is derivative in its life from that sun. And so, don't you see, there is no meaning to any fact in this universe except that it manifests clearly the revelation is a revelation of the God who could not possibly not exist. It's wrong woefully wrong to say what many good people say, that very probably God exists. And it's also a mistake, I am convinced, to say, as we reformed people often say, that though the proofs for the existence of God are not strictly proofs, they are witnesses. If they are not proofs, they are not witnesses. If they are not witnesses, they are not proofs. And the only way you can approach the matter, I would say, is from Paul's point of view when he says that inherently, immediately, directly, every man with Calvin has the sense of deity in fixus in this in fixed in his power, so that no more than you can walk the streets of Ripon without your power can you believe that God does not exist and there isn't a human being in this world that can make himself believe that God does not exist. Everyone knows God. That's the point of contact that you have with every sinner because everybody seeks to suppress that fact. No one in heaven or anywhere else can escape knowing God but no one of himself knows God truly. So secondly, we have to say, do we not, we have to witness to every human being that though in one sense he knows God and can't escape knowing him, in the other sense he does not know him at all unless God has its grace through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit takes these scales from off his eyes. Then he will know, he truly must know the living God in order to be saved and redeemed, in order to set all things in proper relationships with one another to the glory of his God. Now, if that is the point from which we start, then we also, at the same time, start from the fact that we not, that when every fact shows that God exists, every fact to begin with, also shows that God is, at the beginning of history, favorably disposed to man. He made this world for man, for his benefit. He put man in paradise. 
representing the whole human race, Adam was surrounded with God's bounty. And even after man sins against God, God still continues to give his favor unto him. The facts of the universe are expressive, each one of them, without exception, I would say of that favor of God, as each fact reveals God, it reveals God for what he is. And God is, to begin with, love to his people, not only, but to the human race. That's how we begin, do we not? Now then, if that is the case, then we can see that everything that man receives in this world, short of punishment, is common grace. It comes to men in common. God causes his rain to descend and his sun to shine upon the wicked as well as upon the good. Those things are told us in the scriptures and we can understand them to some extent at least if we put them in this light which scripture gives us itself that in the nature of the case of necessity every fact does show the attitude, the favorable attitude, the disposition of favor to mankind as such. But when you've said that, you must say also, of course, the next thing, must you not? But when man sins against God, as Adam did, and all men, we're told by Paul in Romans 5, verse 12, for instance, sinned in him, for all have sinned, being represented by him, but then there is a common curse upon all mankind. And then the elect, as well as the reprobate, those that will be saved, because from all eternity God intends them to be saved, are yet together with others under this wrath and under this curse of God. There's no difference. Yes, there is an other difference, but they are certainly together with the reprobate. There is, in other words, a common curse, as there is first in paradise a common favorable attitude. Then even after sin enters into the world, still an attitude of favor, but there is also an attitude of disfavor. Now, if then you would be tempted to deny that there is common grace, then you ought also to deny that there is any curse on God's people at all at any time if you say, as it has been said by those who deny common grace, that it is impossible to think that God at any point, at any time in history, should have any attitude of favor to the reprobate. Then you ought also to say it is impossible that God at any time, at any point of history, should have any attitude of disfavor to those who are his people. And then you would be saying, in effect, that it would be not necessary for Christ to die, because the wrath of Christ God is upon sinners. And therefore, for sinners, was it necessary that Jesus Christ should die so much, so true, so real, it's God's wrath upon his own people. Well, why not then? Is it also not possible that God should have a favor of a temporary sort, of a provisional sort, by which he witnesses unto men, as Romans, the second chapter particularly, tells us, that this thing is calculated, was given for the purpose that men might repent all these gifts, all this rain, all this sunshine, all this length of life, all this good health, all these beautiful flowering peach trees that I saw on the way this afternoon coming from Berkeley. What are they all? Every bit of it, without any single exception, is a witness on the part of God to man speaking to God, repent, turn from your effort to suppress the fact that I have loved you and that you've rebelled against that love. Repent. Now, of course, it is true, someone might object, that many people are never called to repentance in the sense that those who come under the gospel call are called to repentance. 
Many people live out in parts of the world where the gospel is never preached, and men never hear, hear of that only name by which they must be redeemed. Even so, they are called to repentance, whether they live in the heart of Africa, every day of sunshine and of health, every day that is short of God's manifestation of his wrath such as they deserve, is a call to repentance, to the recognition of God who is their benefactor and who has given them these things, undeserving though they be. Now, I'm stressing this fact because I'm seeking to help you find an answer to the objector of whom I spoke at the beginning, who says that your position as Reformed Christian is completely self-contradictory. And how shall we find this answer? Not by toning down this doctrine of election, nor by toning down the fact that God offers his salvation to men, to many men who in his own wisdom and in his own ultimate plan are not to receive this salvation. He nevertheless seriously calls them to repentance. Now, we are not to tone down either of the horns of that dilemma. If we are to find a solution, we must not, as it were, solve it by toning down the problem itself. Let us see the problem sharply and delineate it clearly, and then see what we must do about it. Well, let us notice some answers, at least, that have been given that are not good answers, because they precisely tone down one of these forms of the dilemma. Let us look for a moment at Karl Barth and Brunner, for instance, what they say about grace and the relation of election and common grace. Let us look what the Roman Catholics say about it and see what they have to offer and how they solve the problem. Then let us look brief, briefly at the Arminian position and then fourthly at the still other position which says that we must not equalize God's election and his reprobation. Those four are all of them ways by which we cannot solve this problem. They are ways by which we are not permitted if we want to retain our reform position to solve this problem. Now, in the first place, how does Karl Barth solve the problem? Well, he believes in election, he says, but he soon tells you that he doesn't believe in it the way John Calvin believed in it or classical reform theology believed in it. Because he says election, of course, if you took it to be election, this man is elect and that man isn't elect, Esau is reprobate and Jacob is elect. In other words, if you take, take the doctrine of election as pertaining to people, individual people, groups of people, then, of course, that is arbitrary. And you mustn't have anything of that sort. That would be terrible. When he was in Hungary, then Karl Barth was asked about the pagan masses, what should be done for them, because they had not heard the gospel. Are they not chosen by God? Then he answered those who asked him this question by saying, Das riecht nach Holland. He, he said, that smells like Holland. Now, what did he mean? Well, he said that because, you see, he had just been in Holland, and there the Reformed people, who did believe, of course, in the doctrine of election, and had, therefore, the idea that those who are elected are those for whom Christ has died, and they are the ones whom the Spirit has regenerated, and they therefore have eternal life. And there are others for whom Christ has not died because they were not chosen in Christ, and therefore they are not born again, and therefore they are not saved. Now he says these Dutchmen, they speak of themselves as blessed possessors, just as though you have a bank and you've got, a, say, a million dollars in the bank, 
And uh, so you don't mind the electric bill that comes next week. It's called. You just write another check. Now he says, don't let the possessors, these reformed people, he says, they are the cockiest, the most conceited people under the sun. He virtually said that, not verbally. Because they, of all people, divide human beings into two groups, and they say that some are elected and some are not elected. Now, he says, away with all such distinction. We must have an idea of an electing God who elects all men, and therefore the reprobate are not reprobate in the sense that they are not to be saved, or they are reprobate in the sense that they are temporarily not yet saved, or they are temporarily out of Christ and they don't like Christ. As a child, my disobeyed parents, as I saw a child slap his father in the face like that on the train, but the father still held it in his arms. He didn't throw the child out of the window. No. So God, though he reprobates and says no to people that disobey him, he says the last word that he speaks is yes, you are my children, all of you. Now that is common grace. You see, nothing but. It has removed election completely. That's how he solves this problem. Well, then there is no problem. But then there is no Christianity either. Because then you have no grace of God except grace that is universal and that saves every human being, or at least, unless he doesn't want to remain saved, he can leave heaven if he doesn't like it there. But just the same, all men are objects of the electing grace of God. Grace is all universal. Now that is what that means by common grace. Well, that's obviously a way that we cannot employ in order to solve this problem. That's just to deny election altogether in the traditional historic sense, and it's also to deny the difference between special grace and saving grace and, and general or common grace. It's even to deny common grace. There is just no grace. It's all salvation by works. Well, now, a second way which we, I think, as Reformed Christians cannot possibly employ for the solution of this apparent contradiction is that of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, in a sense, does believe in election, much more so than Karl Barth or Gruner ever do. But at the same time, they start from man as being the one who finally turns the screws. And God can't reach into the penetralium of the consciousness of that individual. He can only come to mankind as to a class, to a group. For instance, if I came to a reference here to the street alongside of the church, and I had one of these automobiles, and it had a step on the back, and I said, anybody wants to jump on and go with me and get a thousand dollars out of the bank, he may. Now then it's up to you whether you want to get on my bandwagon, so to speak, or do not. In other words, the final decision is then up to you. Now that's, of course, involved in the Roman Catholic doctrine of man's will as absolutely free and of God's inability in any ultimate sense to change that will. God can offer to him a common grace but he can't reach down there by regeneration, by his Holy Spirit, and give that man a new heart, and place him on the wagon, give him salvation. Now, you see, that's another way of solving the relation of God's efforts toward man and man's response to them by simply breaking up the whole thing. That's an attempt, again, to meet this objector by satisfying the demands of logic that he sees them. In other words, it is to admit before the argument begins that the objector is quite right in saying that man must think of himself as ultimate, as autonomous, as a law to himself, 
and that he therefore can reduce the idea of God and what God can do to fit logically with this idea of his that he will not do, but only that which he himself really of his own can do. Now, surely you can understand why the Roman Catholics have no problem with respect to the relation of special and saving or saving and common grace or election and common grace. To them there is no even, not even an apparent contradiction. They have simply sold out the whole Christian religion on this point to the unbeliever. They have admitted that the unbeliever is right in his assumption that man is absolute in himself and has a free will. But God himself must recognize over which God has no control. Now then, in the third place, the Arminian position, which is set forth in the article of the Remonstrance at the time of the Synod of God. It is set forth, of course, many other places, but it is set forth very well in those articles. And it is signalized and criticized in superb fashion in the five articles against the Remonstrance that were placed, that were formed by the Synod of God. Well, what does the Synod of God say about the Remonstrance? Well, it says this one thing, and it says that very clearly, that they make the will of man to be independent in an ultimate way of God. Well, if that is true, then their position is similar to that of the Roman Catholic. Then, of course, God can come again with his bandwagon and say, whosoever will may come, but maybe nobody decides will come. Maybe everybody decides to stay home. And maybe Christ died in vain. And if I should go with this wagon to the streets of Ripon here all evening long, and all of you decide to remain seated here in this church, and the rest of the people remain in their homes, looking at their television sets, or maybe I wouldn't get any customers at all. Well, all my efforts would be for nothing. Well, on this Arminian basis, on the Roman Catholic basis, thus the work of Christ could be absolutely for nothing. His invitation, instead of being on that basis a real meaningful thing, as they claim it is, and as they say, a general invitation can't be significant and meaningful unless you deny the doctrine of election. It is the, re the reverse exactly as the case. It's absolutely meaningless if you hold to the idea of the will of man as ultimate, able to resist even the will of the Creator. Well, then, in the fourth place, Sometimes it is said among Reformed people that though all of these things be true, we must oppose the Roman Catholics and we must uphold the Armenians and we must solve the problem of the apparent contradiction between the universal general offer of the gospel and the commonness of attitude of grace to men in relationship to this election, this antithesis that God makes between men. Well, they say, however, we must not say that election and reprobation are in the counsel of God on a par with one another. Now, Luther had his way of saying that when he said that it was God's improper work to condemn men. It was the work, said Luther, of his left hand. It was God's proper work, the work that he really wants to do and is in accordance with his essence, which is love, to save men. Now that's terminology that Bart and Brunner have also taken over in our day, and therefore they have instituted an idea that reprobation is the next to the last syllable, and election is the last syllable, and therefore reprobation never hurts anybody finally, because it isn't an idea that is based on the essence and ultimate purpose of God, but it is a temporary measure that God takes in order to chastise, to correct, and then to bring men back by his electing grace, all of them, into the one universal fold. Now, you see, certainly we want nothing of that sort, do we, in reform circles? 
Of course we don't. None of them do. Well, then, must we not be careful, too, what we mean and say when we say that there's no equal ultimacy between election and reprobation? Well, Calvin certainly believes in their equal ultimacy. When he argued with Figius, who was virtually of the same persuasion that the Remonstrants and the Arminians were later, and when Figius said, well, your doctrine of election, Mr. John Calvin, is certainly a horrible doctrine, because it does away with my will and my responsibility. What did Calvin say to him? Well, Calvin answered Pigius and others by making a distinction between God, who is the creator, having an ultimate, a final will, and man being the creature, having a proximate, a dependent will, the will of the creature. Now, I don't think it's a fully satisfactory illustration, but if I drive a car and I have a little child sitting in my lap and he holds that car, well, he may be in a sense driving it. Now, I know that's not, you can't get a good, a perfect illustration for anything of that sort, but certainly God's will is involved and man's will is involved, but God's will is the ultimate, the all-determinative will, and therefore Calvin literally says that it is ridiculous to say that there is not equal ultimacy between reprobation and election and term involving the greatest of modern reformed theologians in his Ferretomeda Dogmatique says exactly the same thing in intent when he says that of course you must not say that sin is the cause that is the ultimate cause of men's being lost. To be sure Sin is the responsible part as far as men are concerned. And to be sure, men add to their eternal damnation by the fact that they sin. But back up that fact of their sin in history is nonetheless the eternal will, sovereign disposition of God, by virtue of which he is a vessel of wrath. Now, what's the reason for Calvin's insistence on that equal ultimacy? And why is it important in our question of common grace? Well, it is for this very simple reason. And Calvin, with his razor-blade mind, sees this point precisely. That if you say that reprobation is based on what is done in history by this man who sins, and say that's the cause, then you're saying that even God has a roadblock before him, because all men have sinned in exactly the same way. And he says, then God couldn't save even a single one of them. He would be stumped, so to speak, because he would have over against himself a cause as ultimate as his own. Now, don't you see that therefore, in the interest of the fact of sovereign grace, does Calvin maintain the equal ultimacy of reprobation and election? And I am convinced that in the solution of the common grace problem in relation to the doctrine of election, it is that we don't even come to see that problem with any clarity until we come absolutely face to face with that sovereign God, and we do not in the least turn down the fact that in one unified plan he controls whatsoever comes to pass the destinies of all men, of the reprobating of the elect. We must not turn down that fact in order to solve any problem, because all problems are solved by that fact. It's in the light of the sun that we have light here. If we start by denying the sun or turning down the sun, well, then the sun can't serve us anymore. If we turn down the sovereignty of God in is electing grace, well then all problems remain utterly unsolved. Now then, let us rather solve the problem of common grace in the way that we must solve all theological problems. First of all, admitting that they are insoluble in this sense, in this meaning, that it is impossible for the human mind exhaustively to penetrate into the relationship of that sovereign God 
and of this, our effort in this world. It is, as Calvin puts it, as Darwin puts it, simply true that at every the in every theological problem we are confronted with what appears to be contradiction. It is, we might call it, the full bucket difficulty. If you have a bucket full of water, and then you try to add to that bucket of water, another cup full of water, well, you first have to take a cup full of water out of that bucket in order to be able to put another cup full into it. Well, don't you see, that's how it appears on the surface in this business of God's relation to man, that we must first turn down God's absolute sovereignty just a little bit in order to make room for the freedom of the world. Now then, the Arminian on his side says just that. We must have a God who limited himself, who emptied himself out in order to make room for us in our will. And on the other side, there are those that deny common grace and say, in the interest of maintaining this sovereign God, therefore there cannot be any freedom of the will in the sense that there cannot be meaning in God's presentation offering Christ to men in general. Now, in both cases, I would say it is an attempt to make logic rule over the word of God. And it is as wrong in the one instance as it is in the other. And it is precisely this that Dr. Barton, with his great wisdom, mention has been made already of the fact that Reverend Condellum is with us. I count it a great honor to have him here this evening. He studied under Barton, and frequently he has told me of the great mind of Barton, of the greatness of Barton's mind consisted in his willingness not to submit the fact of the scriptures to a system of logic, but to take all the facts of scripture and let them shed their light upon one another. And he did that in superb fashion when in a previous generation there was a struggle between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. And there was a good deal of heat on the subject, as some of us, the older ones, may still recall. Well, back in, in masterly fashion, I think Reverend Fandellum would agree, points out that if you take supralapsarianism logically down the line, and you're oblivious, or at least negligent to some extent, of the facts of scripture, of the teachings, the simple teachings, of the fact that history has genuine meaning and significance, and that you mustn't drive through a point of logic which would deny the genuineness of the choices and responsibilities of men. And then he says that you took infralapsarianism on the other side, and you started, as it were, with the idea that history does have meaning, that you would tend to turn down that God has by his sovereign disposition from all eternity determined upon the ultimate destinies of men if you took either of those positions and drove them down straight and says you would certainly not do justice to the scriptures. You do justice to the scriptures if you say that both are true in supplementation one of another. And it is impossible for the human mind ever to penetrate exhaustively that relationship than if the infra and supra people at the time had been just a little more conscious of that fact of their common submission to the Bible of the Word of God and the submission of the intellect of man also to that Word of God. Many, many hardships would have been saved. Now that I take it is the case with this common grace business about which we have so much difficulty in our day. There are two extreme views on the subject which I think we ought to avoid. There is the extreme view which says there is no common grace, there can't be any common grace because God has determined from all eternity, he tells us that, that those that are reprobate that they are hated of God, and therefore he hates them and hates them only. Well, that's one extreme. 
That's going off the sidewalk or off the road, you might say, with one wheel of your automobile. And when it's, well, you people here hardly know that because you never have frost in the ground the way we have it out our way. But about a month ago, when first it was frozen and then it began to thaw, and then you get one wheel off the, off the pavement into that mud about a foot deep, it's not so good. You don't drive so well. Now there is, on the other hand, an equally unfortunate attempt to start with the idea of common without difference, and to do precisely what was done by the Armenian, in effect, I'm not charging anybody with Arminianism. I'm only saying that the method is precisely the same. It was practiced at Princeton Theological Seminary in the olden days, when I was a student there, when the great Dr. B. B. Warfield and others maintained that it was possible for the Christian and the non-Christian in a neutral fashion by means of reason to establish an argument for the existence of God. In other words, that you could have a natural theology independent of revelation and that on the interpretation of the evidence in this world, there didn't have to be any basic difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Well, there has been extremely unfortunate results of that approach and it just isn't true to the scriptures. Those common notions by which you say that you and the unbeliever have in common a correct interpretation. If you have such kind of notion on which you agree, that's natural theology, which is, of course, perfectly fine for Roman Catholics to hold and fits their system and in their system, and it comes from their great theologian, Thomas Aquinas, but it has no business anybody that follows Calvin and Calvin's Institute to be sure Calvin stresses that there are common notions, sense of deity, which everybody, as I've already stressed, has. But that's common revelation to us on the part of God, not common interpretation of that revelation. But it's totally different something, is it not? The one is fine, the other is terribly bad. And it's important that we do not attach our doctrine of common grace to this old-fashioned Roman Catholic natural theology idea, and that we don't say there's common grade and area of interpretation, say, in the laboratory, where Christians and non-Christians interpret together this first and constitution of nature and agree together, have notions, that is, interpretation, on which they do not differ in any sense. If you do that, and that's the reason for my address as common grace and witness there, then you have lost your witness. Then you can go into the laboratory with someone who isn't, enough, isn't a Christian, and then you can be a fundamentalist, in effect, and say, won't you come to our church, and won't you come to prayer meeting, as any good fundamentalist is able to invite people of that sort with whom they meet, but you have then lost your witness in the field in which you are laboring with him, because you have admitted that his principle of interpreting that field is right. And then don't you see, he in turn is quick to catch you when you're sleeping, and to say, well now, if we can together interpret nature right, and we have common notions on that, well then... Uh, it is impossible for me, of course, to come to your church and to believe what you teach in church. Because in your church, your Calvinistic church, you teach, your preacher does, Mr. Tannis preaches every now and then, on the doctrine of election. And the whole doctrine of election is presupposed in everything he teaches. Well, then he say, well, I thank you, but I'm sorry I have something else to do next Sunday. I can't come to your service. Because such a God as you have, who actually created the world causally, where he would make all this experimentation of ours in the laboratory to be nonsense, and because it would be determined 
in advance what has to happen. There would be no continuity, no faith, no move, no sense. There would only be analysis. And so he says, I am very sorry, but I cannot come. Now what is the answer? Well, the answer, therefore, is to walk in, a, in the middle of the road, not to go off the sidewalk with one wheel in the swamp and the, on the burn, not to go off the sidewalk with the other wheel. Why be extremists in either direction? Why deny common grace when the Bible so plainly teaches it? And when the first and main point of Kalamazoo, as we call it, God has a favorable attitude to all men, as men, prior to the distinction between elect and reprobate. When that, as Professor Burkhart has so often stressed it correctly, is the point from which we must all start. Then you can say that history is the process of differentiation through which God's ultimate purpose is to be realized. It is to be realized by men's acceptance or rejection of that presentation of the God of God and of his purpose. Those are the means that God implies for his purposes to realize them. But why go off on the other side? Why lose your Christian witness? Why bury your problem? That's what you're doing. If you have a common grace doctrine, in which you have common notions without a difference. I hope I make that point clear. If I don't now, if some of you would ask questions after a while, I wish you would. Because that is to me all important. That we see that there surely is commonness of revelation to us. And there's a common notion of the sort that Calvin speaks of, common awareness of being, which we can escape. But when it comes to interpreting life, you either do it in one principle, or you do it according to another principle. The Christian and the Calvinist does it self-consciously, if he is aware of his own business, on the basis of Scripture and the Scripture doctrine of one God, who has created all things, who has, by his providence, does control all things, so that the facts are what they are and have their meaning. Uh, because of the place they have in this property. And on the other hand, you follow those who have followed Adam and Eve when they stand against God, when virtually they said to the devil, you are right, in suggesting that God can't predict what will happen if I eat of this forbidden tree, because there's no evidence yet, no record yet. Nobody has yet tried it out. And how does God know? Who's he? Anyway, is he bigger than we? Well, the point is, of course, that God is bigger, and that he made this world, and he also made the laws of this world, and he turned and designed the relationship to things and what would happen if man should eat of But that is the introduction of complete irrationalism, of the idea of pure good factuality, that the facts are that they are for no reason under the sun. Modern science teaches this as pure contingency, unrelated, discreet, like having Billions and billions, and this in the number of bees, and the bees having no bones. So are the facts. If you were asked to pass there and you had a few million penguins around you and you want to pet penguins, and you wanted that pet penguin to stay put, so you've been somewhere else and come back again, you flipped its wings just a little and say, Now, little penguin, please stay put. Would you find that penguin there? I don't think you would. But you might then it would be by chance. But if there are millions, not only, but absolutely an infinite number of black spots, and it's a dark December night, and you are blind, then will you find a particular black spot from other black spots you couldn't distinguish the one from the other. Now that's what you must witness to the man of the world, to those that are with you in the same laboratory, because that's the assumption of their approach. They just take it for granted. They don't argue. They just assume that the facts are just there. Now, on the other side, the exact opposite of that, and just as much an assumption on their part is, is not that mind, mind is ultimate, at least that it is a piece of divinity, that it is not a creation, 